somewhere around between quarter after and 25 after 11 that night. It was a cool, clear night, lots of stars, no moon. On the east side of Shag Harbor, Lori Wickens and his friend and three female companions driving back from a function over in Cape Sable Island. As they're driving along on the highway heading southwest, they notice four to five sequentially flashing lights in a line traveling along parallel as they're moving along. So they start keeping an eye on this thing. And they saw the thing disappear from behind the tree line, pointing down at about a 45-degree angle, and it looks like it's heading down towards the water. One of the girls thought she heard a whoosh and a bang. Mm-hmm. And they get out of the car, and they look out on the water, and they see this yellow light slightly above the water, just sort of drifting on the water. And, of course, the UFOs interacting on the bottom, about 80 feet of water off of Government Island there, and... Uh, Government Point uh, at Shelburne with the two objects on the on the bottom. And there was nothing ever found at the bottom? There was uh, some material taken to the Naval Armament Depot in uh, Dartmouth across the harbor from Halifax. Maurice Coffey mentioned this. Uh, he was uh, from the Defense Research Board back in those days. That's the government. I'm sure you've heard of DARPA in the United States. It's the Canadian equivalent of that in, the, in Canada. It's a civilian research organization, mm-hmm. but that works closely with the military, developing, you know, whatever the military wants. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Tonight, a show you're going to have to stay dialed into. Shag Harbor, also known as Canada's Roswell. Now, I bet you didn't know Canada had its own Roswell. Well, it began like so many other nights in Nova Scotia. Crisp, frosty, October 1967. Five lights were spotted moving fast across the sky over the small Nova Scotia inlet known as Shag Harbor. Unexpectedly, an unearthly orange glow began to emit from the center of the lights, and without warning, the object crashed into the middle of the bay, and it began to submerge. Unbeknownst to the unsuspecting community of Shag Harbor, all hell was about to break loose. Jets were scrambled, submarines, Coast Guard boats, Royal Canadian Navy, Royal Canadian Mounties, all converged into a tight net encircling the now-submerged craft. Almost immediately, reports were heard of crashed alien crafts and an unknown luminescent foam bubbling on the surface. But hang on, folks. This is only the beginning. Tonight on Night Fright, Canadian UFO research investigator Don Ledger joins us live on the phone from Nova Scotia. Tonight on Night Fright, Ontario MUFON director is also here. Michelle Deschamps is also here live in studio. Tonight on Night Fright, a show of true UFO sightings and Canadian government cover-ups. Tonight on Night Fright, it's Canada's Roswell Shag Harbor. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. (laughs) 
good, good evening, one and all. Welcome to Night Fright. Author, UFO investigator, and pilot Don Ledger is the author of three books, Maritime UFO Files, it's a catalog of UFO sightings in eastern Canada, Swiss Air Down, a detailed look at the crash of Swiss Air Flight 111 off the coast of Nova Scotia, and more recently, Dark Object, co-authored with Chris Stiles, which chronicles the Shag Harbor incident, October 4, 1967. Don has been investigating the UFO phenomenon for 20 years and presently concentrates on UFO sightings by pilots. He is the Canadian affiliate and technical specialist for the National Aviation Reporting Center for Anomalous Phenomena. I am pleased to welcome back to Night Fright, on the phone from Nova Scotia, UFO researcher Don Ledger, and live in the studio, local Siberian MUFON director, UFOologist Michel Deschamps. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for joining me tonight. I was wondering, Don, can we start off with a little bit of the history of the sightings in the Maritimes? I know you're an expert on this subject and have written a terrific book called Maritime UFO Files on the subject. What was the earliest reported sighting in the Maritimes, Don? The earliest I have in, well, in uh, Maritime UFO Files, there might be uh, earlier sightings still, um, <clears throat> it was back in 1796. Down in, it's in uh, an area called, um, let me, it'll have to come to me now. <laughs> it's on the Bay of Fundy in New Minas. Uh, and, uh, a young girl about 13 years of, old, of age and two young men, which I assume was probably, uh, boys in their late teens or, or um, in that age group, uh, who uh, witnessed an object crossing, uh, 15 objects crossing the sky. Wow. Now it's the, it's coached in the in the terminology of the time as being 15 ships in a line uh, uh, traversing the sky with a man uh, in front with his hand forward. I'm not sure where that guy came from, but this was reported uh, by a messenger to Judge Simeon Perkins in uh, Liverpool, Nova Scotia, and uh, uh, as I mentioned, a judge, and uh, he wrote this up in his diary, and uh, it still exists to this day. Uh, he uh, probably was one of the first debunkers too. He, probably, he, uh, I think he assumed it was probably a bit of hysteria or something on the part of the girl and the two young folks. But uh, uh, when you got multiple witnesses like that, it's uh, usually a little more difficult than that to, to make that <laughs> a, a, assumption. But uh, anyway, that, uh, this was the first one I was aware of. And that actually came from John Robert Colombo's book. Um, oh one yeah. Of the, uh, book for earlier books he wrote about. Uh, uh, anomalies in Canada. It was a mixed book about ghosts and UFOs, mm -hmm. and other strange things, you know. Yeah, John Roberts been on the uh, the show actually. Oh, okay. It's been well, a better year actually. Familiar with him then. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And they continue on up through into uh, I think uh, 1932. Uh, this one wasn't in Nova Scotia. It was off the coast of uh, Labrador, which of course back in 1932 was still part of uh, um, England, I guess. And, uh, or was English protectorate, and, um, was a, a, a two Swedish fellows in an air, in a biplane, uh, flying through the sky when they, uh, noticed they were being followed, uh, by the classic, uh, UFO shaped object, and, uh, the pilot noted in his, uh, in mm -hmm. his, uh, uh, I don't know if you call, call it a logbook, uh, his story, that these, um, that this thing, he felt, uh, some, uh, level of malevolence 
something from the thing. Uh, oh, it, it, he did, I eh? think probably more that he was disturbed by the uh, the look of the thing and uh, maybe the um, the technology of the thing. This has happened more than a few times with pilots that encounter these things that they get a sinking feeling in the pit of their stomach when they see these things. Because I know they're not ours, or, or you know, mm-hmm. they're pretty certain they aren't. And maybe they start thinking of something they hadn't been thinking before. Now, Don, have you ever seen a UFO? Oh, yeah, I've seen a, a couple of... Uh, uh, UFOs in my my time. And did you get that same sinking feeling that you've just Actually, described? The first one was uh, a feeling of being kind of peed off, as they say. And the uh, <laughs> the second one was uh, uh, more of a sort of wonderment and uh, surprise because it caught me off guard. Did you want to hear them? Yeah, they if you wouldn't mind. Off. I was going to ask if you would describe them, and that's perfect. Well, the first one actually took place in BC. I was out there on uh, on government work, but I had a day off in between and decided to drop over and see the see some of the fellows at UFO uh, BC UFO, uh, UFO BC and uh, one of them was uh, Graham um, Conway who picked me up uh, after I took a, a twin otter over from uh, Victoria BC to uh, to Vancouver mm-hmm. to his house. I, I'm without a car of course and we had a little lunch there, and we were heading into, uh, I'd run out of film. I'd been shooting all day, being out in BC and all. And uh, since I'm a pilot, I'm crazy about twin otters anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'd taken a bunch of pictures there, particularly while we were flying. And then, uh, so my camera was out of film, and he was taking me into the Shoppers Drug Mart uh, at uh, at one of the malls close by, outside of, uh, in Surrey, actually, not exactly in uh, in Vancouver. And uh, while we were walking across the parking lot to uh, to heading into the uh, uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, uh, I was chatting away, and then all of a sudden I realized he wasn't beside me anymore, and I turned around and looked, and he was staring up at the sky. So I looked up, and there was a thin cross in the sky. This is about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, in a clear blue sky, I might mm-hmm. add, the first one since I'd gotten there about four days before. And it was just basically... If I had to give you proportions, we do a proportion of a cigarette. Um, white, mm-hmm. uh, cylindrically shaped, crossing the sky at about 2,500 feet, moving maybe about 125 knots, somewhere in that range. And uh, uh, very uh, anomalous. There was no wings, no uh, cockpit, no uh, jet pods, no vertical tail, horizontal stabilizers or anything on this thing. What and was your initial know, reaction, Don, well, when you first saw it? I don't know. I think possibly because my camera was sitting in the car about probably 30 feet away with a telephoto lens on it, no filament is what really ticked me off. And it was almost as if this, as if this thing knew the that way, I didn't yeah. have film yeah. left, because I think I would have gotten some great shots. Mm-hmm. But um, the um, I, I mentioned that to Graham later, and he said, you know, this thing is almost insolent, and it was insolent in its attitude that it was crossing the sky quite slowly. It was evidently nothing that could should be flying across Surrey skies, Surrey, you know, Surrey, mm-hmm. uh, the the city of Surrey, BC, um, had no reason to be flying because there was no visible means of support. Uh, people have said to me, "Well, maybe it was a cruise missile." Uh, you have to use your head a little on these things, you know. You don't have a cruise missile <laughs> flying over Surrey, BC, not unless it's a terrorist act, Jeez. you know, and. Um, or any kind of rocket, particularly a rocket. Rockets don't uh, don't fly level. You know, they mm-hmm. um, if they are, they've got some kind of a support a supporting uh, 
uh, lifting uh, surface of you know that attaches them to keep them flying, and then you're into the cruise missile stage again. So there you go. Uh, but this thing didn't have you know no smoke trail, a slight no indistinct haze at, at the tail end of the thing as the corkscrew corkscrew mm. slightly along its longitudinal axis as it made its way across the sky. Now, this thing, like I said, was only about a half mile away. If 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 I was at an airport and I saw this and it was a 747, I'd be able to see windows, I'd see lettering and so on and sure, so forth. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, very used to that sort of thing, you know. But this thing wasn't. And we watched that thing, I guess, probably about three and a half to four minutes as across the sky. And we couldn't make head or tails of what it was. And, you know, the initial thought was, well, maybe this is an airliner curving around us and its wings down, you know, and we mm. can't see, you know, against the fuselage and the other one's buried behind the fuselage. But this thing wasn't turning around. It was crossing the sky in front of us and just continued on out of sight. Um, I guess, Don, the initial reaction of anybody would be try to find a traditional explanation for it. I want yeah. to ask Michelle, Michelle, just out of speculation, any idea what, from what Don's just described, what you would describe it as? <laughs> Pretty well the way he's described it. A UFO. Yeah. Yeah, for I, sure. Hi, Don. It's Michel Deschamps. Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, yeah, because I've seen a, a white object like that that was cylindrical in shape at first, and then later on the si the object actually changed shape and was spherical in shape at the, really? last, at the very end of the, the yeah. sighting. Yeah, after I've uh, shut off my camcorder, because I, I did get some uh, okay. some footage. Now, was that in northern Ontario, Mike? Yes, in uh, in Hanmer, north of Sudbury. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Okay, let's go back to Don and get his so other there story. you go. And, yeah. and they're not uncommon cylindrical objects. I had a 747, Air Canada 747 pilot based in Holland mm -hmm. call me, oh, this people six, seven years ago now, I guess, um, and ask me about a sighting he had over Seoul, when they were over just south of Seoul, Korea, him and his co-pilot and the flight engineer. And uh, he said that, um, now, this happened to him back in about 1984, and he said all of these years, this thing has haunted me. He says, you know, it pops into my head maybe once a day or once every couple of days because I could, we couldn't figure out what it was. And he asked me if I knew what it was. And I said, well, no, if I knew that answer, I could probably be a billionaire by now. But um, mm -hmm. the uh, but I told him, of, uh, you know, about my sighting some years before, shortly, well, I guess probably about three years before he contacted me. It was in 1998 for me, so it was probably about five years. Um November 17, 1998, when I spotted that thing. Hmm. And uh, so uh, I said there, there are numerous sightings of cylindrical-type objects. This one was at about his 10 o'clock position, if you're looking at the clock, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the airplane with the nose being at uh, at, at uh, 12 o'clock, and you go around, this would be about off to his 10 o'clock position, and maybe about a half mile away, and just tracking right along with them, just ahead of them, and uh, quite large. This wasn't tiny. Mm. Um, and of course that spooks pilots anyway because when you get something in the sky that's um, you know close to your airplane and it's not supposed to be in your airspace and you don't know what its intentions are you don't know what it's going to do oh yeah you have to figure out one say it all of a sudden it decided to make a right hand turn yeah and pull around in front of him well collision time and something like that when the airliner is already doing about seven miles a minute it doesn't take very long to close on a thousand feet. You know, you're bang, you're into the thing. Especially if it dwarfs your plane too by several sizes, by several times. Well, exactly, Michelle. Yeah. These things are, you know, can be too. You know, the pilots have reported those. Yeah. Um, and they have a, you know, they've got an axe to grind. It's one thing for us to stand on the ground and watch these things as a curiosity. For them, it's a hazard. You know. Yeah, absolutely. That's, mm -hmm. that's my my affiliation with NARCAP, the United States National. 
aviation reporting center for aerial for anomalous phenomena or aerial phenomena, if you wish. And that's what they do. And they have, you know, a, a database of probably about 3,500 to 4,000 sightings. Whoa. And these are made by pilots who have voluntarily made out report forms for them. Eh? Yeah, Richard Haynes has also collected, uh, was it 3,000 Well, that's reports? Richard Haynes. That's his outfit. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's, his, that's right. Yeah. yeah, him and uh, Ted Rowe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he had about thirty-five hundred himself. But since then, I'm sure they've gathered up another. I know he got a few from me and uh, from around. This was, you know, he started that thing about the year two thousand. Yeah, and I'm, I'm assuming he gathered up a few, a few more since the thirty-five hundred. Wow. There's a, um, and I don't want to hog your ear. Uh, no, 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 your please, please, here. But here's another one that most people don't know about. Okay. NASA has a a voluntary a voluntary. Um, uh, confidential reporting uh, database that they use in the United States, so pilots can complain about, uh, you know, what they think might be aircraft problems or uh, company problems, and other pilots, uh, you know, busting the regulations or something like mm -hmm. that. And there's that database is uh, numbers about 600, uh, over seven, uh, over 700,000 now. Um, it, but about 35 to 40,000 of them are UFO reports. So they're on there, but you've got to really dig at them to get them out of there. Yeah. Canada has the, Cana uh, uh, the Civil Aviation Daily uh, uh, Occurrence Reporting System, which is, uh, uh, reports, you know, all kinds of, uh, they come out every day, mm -hmm. and, which is it's not a voluntary thing. It's, just, it's part of NAV Canada and Transport Canada's uh, system network. Yeah. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now and now your host Brent Holland Don when when they come forward and they make public disclosure like that are they ostracized by their the pilots yes they don't, by their they companies? don't normally make public reports no way. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's just too much uh, baggage attached to it I understand drag along with you yep. not only do they're going to probably they're going to take take heat from uh, probably ridicule from their peers you know other pilots mm -hmm. and so on but there are um, uh, numerous instances of pilots, um, you know, being taken to task for it or threatened or told them to shut their mouths and so on and so forth. Look at what happened at the Chicago O'Hare thing back in 19, was that 2007 now, I guess? 2006. Yeah. In November of 2006, uh, United Airlines told all their employees they weren't allowed to talk about this thing. They told their employees they couldn't talk about it. Now, that's nonsense. First of all, it's against the law. You can't tell people not to talk about something like that, yeah. but they did. And you know the damn pilots are going to probably say, okay, I'm not, sure, not going to open my big mouth. And there was plenty of pilots sitting around on the ground that day. Yeah. But uh, we'll never, ever find out what happened unless maybe they retire or somebody sneaks off a confidential report somewhere. But, I mean, that sort of thing happens, and it's, it's, it goes right back, all the way back to the Second World War, you know, with the Foo Fighters thing and so yeah. on and so forth. There's a lot of folks listening right now that don't know about the Foo Fighters. Could you oh, yeah. keep that's a brief hold up? The musical group, maybe. Well, this is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's where, that's where the name that's where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, actually, uh, it, you know, the, the Foo Fighters, one term, uh, and, and it's an American one at that, um, from uh, Americans, Canadians, uh, British pilots, uh, German pilots, uh, Japanese pilots that had, uh, you know, these anomalous sightings were going on back during the Second World War, and uh, uh, they would report these things, but they were getting, uh, initially being uh, uh, thought of as being uh, maybe some kind of a weapon, secret weapon of the enemy. Well, uh, sure, yeah, different, that would be my, uh... they, They'd have different 
explanations for, or tried to have different different explanations for different uh, size craft, you know, or color of the craft, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, there was a, a cartoon called Smokey Smoky Stover, where, uh, and one of his favorite uh, back in the uh, during the war, and I can remember reading it as when I was a kid, you know, back in the early fifties, and it had to do with some firefighters, uh, and uh, they were sort of a comical bunch, mm-hmm. and uh, one of his. Um, um, favorite expressions in the in the um, in the cartoon was where where there's smoke there's foo, and uh, my, Michelle will probably uh, yeah. back me up on this. So the French French word for fire is foo, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. So anyway, that, so somehow that that got attached maybe by the pilots or whatever to these things, you know, where there's smoke there's foo, and that's what these were the foo fighters. And of course, it got changed over from feu to uh, or fue is it feu? I guess it is. Uh, to FOO. Yeah. But anyway, there was numerous numerous oh. uh, reports during the war of documentation, and uh, some of the usual suspects, such as uh, Harold Robertson, who was on the Robertson panel in 1952-53 area when he first, they first started making a serious uh, attempt to uh, dis, uh, uh, issue disinformation mm-hmm. on this stuff. He was back in the 19 as early as 1942 and 43, running around gathering these reports for the United States uh, uh, Army. Army Air Force in the day they weren't the USAF at that time, but um, and uh, so the British were concerned about this as well. I know we probably are. I've made uh, representations to uh, through Air Force magazine in Canada to try to get uh, some of the pilots that maybe that are still around from the mm-hmm. Second World War who might have as, as Canadian pilots. Uh, observe these things as well. Now, well, just let me put the call out there to them right now. Folks, if yeah. you're listening and you're one of those pilots that has seen an anomaly during the Second World War, or let's even fast forward to Korea, do email me, nightfrightshow at gmail.com, or just go to the Night Fright website. It's a focal point for things like that. You'll find the email there, www.nightfrightshow.com. Sorry, Don, to interrupt you. Uh, that's okay. But anyway, the um, uh, and I've asked because uh, I know they're there. Thing is, a lot of our pilots were in the RAF rather than the RCAF. They yes, were Canadian pilots, right. but yeah. they were under British command. You know, mm-hmm. so. Um, but uh, so I'm sure some of the British sightings were probably with from Canadian pilots, particularly bomber groups and so on and so forth. But I can't find them, and I've, I've gotten interested in this because of uh, the uh, book by uh, uh, Keith Chester mm. called Strange Company. And um, it was a book he wrote about the food, and he did a very good job in this. He, he researched it carefully and had the documentation and so on and so forth that's out there now. I'm not trying to plug him, but I'm sure he'd appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine, and, uh, Don. That's fine. What? That's fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. That's fine. But anyway, uh, no, it's a good book, and I urge mm-hmm. anybody to read it because uh, it's got a lot of detail in there about the Foo Fighter and how these things started out and disinformation and so on and so forth. I haven't finished it myself, so I'm still working on it. But anyway, so there you go. From that uh, from that viewpoint, uh, I always I'm always looking for uh, pilot reports of UFOs, particularly in this country, so I can get okay. our database sorted out and so on. Don, you had mentioned NASA before. Yeah. Um, I've been reading your book, which is a terrific book, by the way. Congratulations, Maritime uh, UFO Sightings. Yeah. And in the book, you mentioned several famous people. One of them, a NASA astronaut, Gordo Cooper. Yeah. that have seen UFOs. I was wondering if you could name a few more, like the fellow that discovered the planet Pluto. I guess what I want to get across to the folks that are listening is 
these aren't crack box floats. These are real human beings. That, I mean, a NASA astronaut goes through phenomenal testing. Yeah. And astronomers, too. I mean, exactly. I mean, the, the, yeah. one of the main, major arguments is that no astronomers has ever seen UFOs, and that's totally wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, that's nonsense. Yeah. There are lots of astronomers that have seen UFOs, many uh, amateur astronomers as well. Yeah. But you will see people out there who say, well, you know, if there was anything to this, amateur astronomers and real astronomers see these things all the time. Uh, not unless they happen to be out in their backyard or something like that to see them, because they're not likely to be seeing them on a radio telescope or looking at them through, mm -hmm. you know, or uh, boxed in in some office data somewhere. coming back yeah. from the Hubble. Because yeah. Hubble's not looking looking down here; it's looking hundreds and thousands of light years out into space. Yeah. And uh, you're not going to see a UFO there. I mean, it could be, but you wouldn't know it anyway. So, but uh, no, uh, Clyde Tomba, he was um, he was. Um, uh, the fellow who discovered Pluto, which has kind of been downgraded now to an asteroid, I guess, but it took him 11 years of using the blinking process of looking at different places in the sky, the same place in the sky, mm -hmm. uh, taken at two different times, you know, uh, during that 11 year, during, during, during a certain period, and they use a blinking process, and this thing goes back and forth, showing first one place and the other, and you're looking at it with your eyes, and if there's anything on that particular plate that's moved, the little dot of light that you see, because when they show up, they show uh, they take them. They use the negative. It's, uh, the stars look black and space looks white. So you'll see the thing moving back and forth. And uh, it took them 11 years to track the the, the orbit of Pluto because it's so far out there. And um, and uh, you know, so he discovered this thing. This guy had great observation skills, you know. Wow. And then he's sitting up in his back porch in 1948 in Texas, I think it was, and looking up the sky, and this thing rolled over top of him, you know, with sort of a pastel green color, and, uh, uh, you know, moved across mm -hmm. the sky quite sedately, and uh, he said right then and there he had a paradigm shift, you know, that he looked at this thing and he knew right then and there that it wasn't one of ours. There's no way that thing could be ours. Mm -hmm. And this is a fellow, you know, knows what's supposedly going on in space. Oh, absolutely. And uh, as for Gordon Cooper, he saw his uh, him and others tried to chase a UFO over Germany. I think it was in 1953 in F-86 Sabre jets when they were based over there before he became an astronaut. But uh, in the meantime, I think he had another sighting as well. His um, I'm trying to think of the name of his book. I yeah, have it, I have it at home, actually. I read it. Yeah, um, I, I've just packed recently packed away a bunch of my books because I might be moving. And um, I, I'm just trying to remember now what the, what the name of that was. And do you think I could either? Eh? I can't either at the top of my head. No. But I know yeah. I did get it at Chapters, folks, and you can get Don's books at Chapters also. Yeah. Right across the country. But there you have you know, a fairly famous astronaut. Well, he was uh, number seven in the um, Mercury, Mercury. Mm -hmm. and, and orbited more than any of the others. And I understand some presidents of the United States have witnessed them also. Sure. you got... Uh, uh, Reagan, uh, him, he actually had his uh, private, he was in a charter jet or mm -hmm. at the time. I think he was governor of uh, California at the time before yeah. he finally became president, but yeah, he, uh, so. yeah. or was running for president, and, uh, and uh, they spotted one in the air somewhere over California, and they, he had the pilot go after it. That's right. Thing over random. Wow. As yeah. they usually do. Yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Grant Kennedy, or Grant, sorry, uh, Grant, um, Help me out here, Michelle. Cameron. Cameron, yeah. Has a presidential UFO website. He's got you know, all kinds of details on, uh, you know, United States presidents uh, 
seeing these things. Isn't it curious, though, it has to be a United States president? Mm. Prime well, Minister Canada? Who cares, you know? <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, though, I was reading something about our Prime Minister during the war, which was um, our Prime uh, Minister during the Second World War. Oh, uh, Mackenzie King. Mackenzie King, thank you. Yeah. That's where I get the M from. Yeah. He was, as far as I know, I read a little bit about him, and he claims to have seen a UFO also. Yeah. Churchill was interested in them as well. I don't know if he had a sighting, but he'd been reading reports on them. And, of course, uh, uh, Lord, um, oh, for heaven's sake. Lord Hill Nor Norton? Yeah, there's, uh, yeah, and there's Lord Mountbatten, too. Okay. Really? Uh, Mountbatten, Mount too? Yeah, he was very interested in it. And I think they hmm. carried through to Prince Philip. And Philip had a, 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 an abiding interest in the, in the phenomenon. But Lord Mountbatten, I think, had some personal, I don't know if he actually saw one, but he had some personal interaction, you know, with the MI5, MI6, or mm -hmm. one of the spook mm -hmm. agencies in England uh, during that time. Well, him being one of the uh, the leaders of the uh, the British Army, you know, back in those days, too. Or, or, I'm not exactly sure what his rank was. Um but you know, there's uh, you know there's enough high, highly connected people, but still that doesn't seem to amount to anything. It's uh, this information that surrounds this this business. Um, I've been online uh, on a UFO site uh, battling for the UFO, you know the Ken Arnold sighting in uh, mm -hmm. back in 1947. What somebody was trying to tell me was probably just meteors or something. But I mean, oh, meteors traveling horizontally yeah. at six thousand feet at twelve hundred miles an hour is absurd. You yeah, know? A meteor worth a conscience. Yeah, but this isn't. This is not somebody that's that's. Uh, this is a bright person. You ought to know better. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's trying to associate it with something else. And I don't know. It it just sometimes it just gets out of hand. Uh, you know. Ken Arnold was a pilot of, you know, a pilot started all of this thing in the first place, or at least it became public because of him. And Ken Arnold, all he did was fly from Chehalis, Washington uh, State, to uh, Yakima, went just below uh, Mount Rainier in Washington, and, and while he was there, he loitered because he was part of the Civil Air Patrol at the time. This guy had 3,500 hours. He's flying in a small little airplane, no radio, no real navigational aid. He was an excellent pilot. 3,500 hours of time by the time he gave it up, and flying over some of the worst territory you can imagine. Flying in mountains for a pilot's a really tough job, particularly when you have to fly down low where we have to. Absolutely. But anyway, he spotted the uh, nine objects crossing uh, the face of uh, the Mount Rainier heading uh, southeast, southeastward uh, down towards Mount Adams, and he measured their speed at around, he first came up with around 1,700 miles an hour. He was using his uh, clock in his airplane. And uh, but then he downgraded that to be conservative to around 1,200 miles an hour. Now this is 1947. Mm -hmm. Chuck Airgear didn't break the sound barrier just over seven, well about 760 miles an hour until October of that same year. Yeah. So he had a sighting of something. He goes over to Yakima, lands. He, he used to sell fire 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 equipment, and mm -hmm. he was on his way back to Pendleton. But he uh, but he 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 made a stop in Yakima first. Yeah, Yakima or Yakima, I'm not exactly sure how they pronounce it down there. While he was there, he told a helicopter pilot buddy of his about what he'd seen, and they speculated on a bit. Then he just sort of dropped it and took off and landed in Pendleton. When he got there, there was a bunch of porters, reporters waiting for him. He never called them flying saucers. He said they looked like the way they moved across the sky was as if you skipped a saucer across the water. And some guy picked oh, up and yeah, called it a flying yeah. saucer, and yeah. that's where we got that foolish term from in the that first term. place. But, you know, he wasn't a guy out looking for any publicity. He just told another pilot about it, and it, the, the publicity hit him when he landed in uh, Pendleton 
Or uh, Pendleton, uh, Iowa. I'm trying to remember what state that was now. Gee, that's awful. I'm getting too old. No, not at all. Don, we have to take a station break right now, sure. just for five minutes. What I do is I read out the stations that dial us in and yeah. listen to us. Okay. And I'll read that out. But when we come back, Don, I want to ask you about the various shapes of the saucers. And, of course, yeah. folks, we will be getting into Shag Harbor very soon. So stick with us. We're just setting it up properly so there's a context there for you to look at and listen for. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, we're speaking with Don Ledger, Canadian legend in the UFO research, and our own legend right here in Sudbury, Michel Deschamps. Don't you have to be dead to be a legend? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would think so, but thank God we're not. <laughs> I, I never heard that before. Is that true? You have to be dead to be a legend? Yeah. I okay. Oh, well. I'm going to carry the little satellite handheld with me to wireless phone just to, just to keep up with you here. Okay. I'm going to say reputable. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is that better? The reputable Don Ledger from Nova Scotia, live on the phone. We're going to be talking about Canada's very own Roswell very shortly, Shag Harbor. Yes, folks, if you're just joining us, I bet you didn't even know Canada had its own Roswell. Well, indeed we do, and we're going to be going into that in just a few minutes. And Michel Deschamps is here, and I'm going to ask him if there was a Roswell in northern Ontario. And we'll get into that, too. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Right now, you're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. We broadcast every Wednesday between the hours of 3 and 5 in the afternoon and 10 at midnight at night from beautiful Sudbury, Ontario. And I want to thank Deborah Frankel for all her efforts in putting this show together and working behind the scenes. And it really makes a big, big difference. It certainly does uh, when you have uh, the type of support that she's given this show. I want to thank you very, very much, Deborah. Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, God's Country, Wednesdays. 3.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon. I want to say hi to my friend Matthew Burke. Lakehead University in Rockin' Thunder Bay. Sunday nights at midnight. I want to say hi to my pal Jason Wellwood. Hope things are well with you, my friend. The voice of the Eastern Townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec. And that's Saturdays from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. at night. I want to say hi to my friend David Teasdale. CJ UM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Another beautiful, beautiful campus in Canada. Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings, 1 a.m. I want to say hi to Jared McKittiak. Sound FM 100.3, my buddy Road Dog. University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario. Sunday nights, Monday mornings, three shows back-to-back, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. CKXU 88.3 FM, University of Lethbridge in Lethbridge, Alberta. Friday nights at midnight. Hey, Alan Gillespie, hope things are well with you. CIVL 88.7 FM, University of the Fraser Valley, Abbotsford, B.C., beautiful British Columbia. Thursdays at 2, Friday mornings at 2 a.m. I want to say hi to Amos Evans. You're listening to Night Fright, 
your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. We're back and we're speaking with Michelle Deschamps, local UFO reputable person. <laughs> I just learned that if you're a legend, apparently you have to be dead. So now he's a reputable person. And of course, another great Canadian reputable person, Don Ledger from Nova Scotia, is on the line live. And tonight we're going to be discussing Shag Harbor. Now you're going to say, what's a Shag Harbor? Shag Harbor is Canada's Roswell. Now I'm going to lay a bet. Most of you listening right now don't know that Canada has its very own Roswell. And we're going to be discussing that in a few seconds. But right now we're going to come back to Dawn and we're going to be discussing the various shapes of saucers that people have seen. And there's a very big commonality in all of these. And we're going to get into those right now. But first, Michelle has a question. Fire away, Michelle. Yeah, Dawn. Yeah. Yeah, before you... Uh you focused your attention on uh, the pilot sightings, uh, and you were collecting. Were you actually collecting like reports from all over about anything related to UFOs? Because I wanted to know if you ever got any reports of humanoid sightings. Um, uh, humanoid. Yeah. Or UFO occupants. Pardon me. UFO occupants. Uh yeah um yeah actually I did but. Uh, uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if you could call me human. I suppose you, well, yeah, I guess they are when you think about it. Um, this, um, you know, when I was writing, uh, actually there's, there's one, uh, a couple in the book, um, uh, Maritime UFO Files at the end, which I called Interventions, where people had, um, you know, claimed that there was, um, some other presence around, you know, well, uh, <clears throat> you know, well, they've had their, well, they had their experience. And even the Shag Harbor Youth mm-hmm. incident has a, a, a few attached to it, uh, you know, uh, both one, both on 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 land and then in, uh, in the ocean itself. So mm-hmm. the um, I've had people phone me and report to me about instances, you know, about the abduction phenomenon. Uh, I've, I've, you know, I think every researcher that's been at this for a while gets. Uh, uh, more than a few of those things to to deal with, you know. And yeah. uh, earlier on, when these first started popping up, or I started hearing about them. Of course, you know, I've been hearing about them ever since, uh, uh, you know, the Villa Boas uh, incident. Way, you know, I guess that was back in the fifties. I think when the Villa, uh, I'm not yeah, exactly 50, sure. I pronounced yeah, fifty-seven. It, right? Down in Argentina, I think it was Brazil. Yeah, Brazil. Okay. Yeah. Well, it had to be one of those two places anyway. And <laughs> but anyway, um, you know the. Uh, uh, the Bernie and um, oh my God, Bernie and Betty, Betty sighting. God, I knew Betty. Yeah. You know, I've met her a few times. Uh, Betty uh, Hill sighting in uh, <clears throat> New Hampshire, and there's a little thing going on at the on Labor Day weekend down there for that. Hmm. Um, you know, that's been uh, you know this has been been reported over you know ever since this phenomenon has been around. There's been some association going on there, or some uh, mm-hmm. between the two. Yeah. And of course, you know, the more uh, more we went through uh, the years, particularly into the '80s and so on, they really started coming out. And then, of course, God, there's tons and tons of them, you know. And I know myself have had probably people report, uh, you know, the experience, and uh, and 
their experience uh, either in whatever state they were in or uh, in or in an actual state yeah. their experience uh, with these things uh while they were abducted you know so yeah that's the only problem i have with um, a lot of people focus or they sort of bag together um the abduction phenomena and i i was talking about the close encounters of the third kind where you see the occupants near yeah. a landed ship but don't necessarily have a direct interaction with them well and I can uh, yeah. yeah and ted phillips says that in um, in the landing cases 23% of the landing cases actually include the observation of small occupants and with yeah. some footprints that have been found. Really? Even, even in Manitoba. There was one case I have a picture of. Yeah. I was taken in Manitoba of a footprint, and it's so small, the guy is actually holding up uh, uh, an ink pen next to the footprint, and it's small in comparison. Can oh, you yeah. send it to me, and I'll put it on the website? Sure, sure. Folks, if you want to go to the website, it's www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com, and you'll find a picture of all the things we're talking about tonight. You'll find links both to Don Ledger's website and Michelle Deschamps' website. It's all going to be right there for you. I've made the website as a focal point for the show. There's going to be pictures there. Most importantly, though, hit the archives. And you're going to find a whole archives of the shows that we've been broadcasting since October when we started to record them. So that's all there, www.nightfrightshow.com. Don, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit going back to the shapes, the various shapes. And I noticed when I read your book, there's some commonalities there. They're not all that different. There's basic shapes. There's four or five basic shapes. Yeah. I was wondering if we could talk about those a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah. This, you know, when I first uh, started reading about this stuff, and I didn't really get involved. And in I was a, a, an interested spectator, you know, probably ever since I was around 13 years old or 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Whenever I saw that movie, UFO or Unidentified Flying Object, uh, which is a cute little primer for people to uh, to watch if they can get their hands on it, it does sort of give them a grounding at the very first of this thing back in the least 52, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 53, 51, 52, 53, something like that. But, um, uh, and I would be, you, quite often I'd be kind of uh, upset when there was anything but, you know, the classic UFO shape involved. But then, you know, when I got more involved in aviation uh, and began to realize that we don't have a, a classic shape for an airplane either. Um, I mean, they all have wings and they got a fuselage and they got a tail on them and there's a generality about them. Right. And, uh, but there are so many different types of aircraft in this world. So, you know, there are literally tens of thousands of different aircraft models that have been built or, or, or are still in existence. You know? That's a very good point. Yeah. And, uh, so, and they all serve different purposes. You know, uh, a general purpose to get through the air, go from point A to point B, mm -hmm. or get up and go over and rescue people or whatever, you know, helicopter shapes and so on. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I suppose there's nothing to stop uh, whoever the, or whatever this other intelligence is that might be visiting our skies. Uh, they might have per their own purposes, too, for the shapes of their uh, their craft. And uh, Well, let me throw this into the mix for the two of you. Do you think it's only one species visiting us, or do you think there could be various species no. and perhaps they use different crafts? Yeah. 
No, I don't think there's. I don't think there's just one. No, no, no. It, it, no I, if it is, if we are being visited, exactly. Uh, I'm not trying to be offensive. No, 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 no. No, it's just that in, in in some of the earlier clippings from the from the Sudbury Star, for instance, in the fifties, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, that's all what they they would say was that they came from one planet, but then. All these shapes were all appearing, and mm -hmm. I personally don't think that it's just one planet. I mean, no, of course. Do you we think have that's part of the, the Hollywood phenomena that entered in there? They're Martians. They're all from yeah, Mars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would think so. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's strange though how often uh, the shape comes up or the little guy comes up there. You know, the little gray guy. The little gray fellow. So no, I know. Mm -hmm. You know, Whitley Strieber, not Whitley Strieber, good Lord, uh, Steven Spielberg, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, probably right. did more to to get that thing out there but um here here's my personal theory first of all i don't think this phenomenon is a local phenomenon at all i don't think it's got anything to do specifically with us um hmm. i think too often people think about this phenomenon as being a point-to-point -point thing there's our planet and some other planet that's come here to visit us i don't think it's got anything to do with that i think it probably has more to do with the the the, the, the history and the immense age of our solar system or our universe already which goes back about 14.7 billion years now in our galaxy alone we, it, it goes back apparently over 10 something 11 billion years or something like that I might be wrong about that but think of the possibility there's with hundreds of billions of planets stars I mean and the possibility of other planets in this in, in our galaxy alone never mind the rest of the universe and there's uh, countless billions of galaxies um, so, so supposing some civilization rose up and uh, in one place and then another place and another place, and we're talking billions of years ago here, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or even millions of years ago. Look at the jump they got on us. We're just getting into space, and, and actually uh, the Americans got into space and then sort of pulled back from it, you know, not going mm -hmm. to the moon. Uh, but the ESA, the European Space Agency, the Russians, the Chinese, everybody and their grandmothers get involved nowadays. But... Um, you know, supposing these other uh, other uh, civilizations did get into space, you know, an intelligent species that finally made it uh, to the tool-making stage and then from that on to the stage where they became uh, uh, clever enough to, to make uh, heavier-than-air aircraft or heavier-than-methane, whatever fool, you know, whatever, mm -hmm, whatever fuels them. breathing there. And they, they were able to get out into space. And then... Uh, and then they're, you know, over thousands of years moved from uh, their local area, their own solar systems out into space, and uh, probably eventually lost sight of actually their own home planet. Maybe that's the case, I don't know. Maybe they know where their own planet is, some of them do. Uh, but many of them are ranging around out there uh, and probably have run into one another and formed alliances or whatever. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's just, I think it's almost a... a uh, a, a situation that is beyond our beyond our ken because we we haven't had the experience we haven't had enough experience of that to know how these things could probably uh, formulate uh, you know as a, some kind of a federation or whatever you know we make mm -hmm. movies about it but I don't think we really understand the, the the concept or the process but we get out and we move along through space and you've got say could be, I don't know how many civilizations who have expanded over millions of years into huge populations that are mm -hmm. ranging out through space, because that's what they do. I mean, that's their reason their, their reason for living, you know, that's their life, you know. And, and, and then it, they stumble across some little planet here or there, yeah. or maybe at one point, you know, uh, and I'm beginning to think this goes back, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, tens of thousands of years on our planet, because there's, 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 an, there's an awful pile of 
carvings and rock, you know, on rock and so on that sort of indicate that, yeah, going back at you. least 35,000 to 40,000 years, and uh, enough anomalies to, to make us think. And so um, they stumble across us. You mm-hmm, know, they check yeah. in every once in a while, or maybe they're more interested than that. They don't have to be here. They can be anywhere in the, in the solar system and hide from us because yeah. we really don't have that much out there looking around. Yeah, and, it's, and, it, and it helps for, it helps a lot for space travelers, too, if their lifespan uh, quite exceeds ours. Like, yeah. let's say if you had, if you had a civilization that, whose lifespan could be th- uh, 300 to 400 Earth years. Well, this is the case. You know, I mean, we're expected, mm-hmm. I, I think, sometimes in the ne- over the next century to probably start creeping up another 125-year line mm. range, which means we'll probably have to work until we're around 95 or something like that and then retire, because, geez, that's an awful prospect. <laughs> but the, um, supposing they, uh, you know, they are older than us, or maybe, uh, here, and here's the other thing, too. If you get anybody that happens to be motor, and they're not going to travel through space in little tiny little, no, you know, no. flying saucers or anything, you know, that sort of foolishness. No. They probably have monster. Who says they can't hitch rides on asteroids, you know, haul of them out, you know, and use them as a... Or, or like aircraft carriers. Yeah, well, that's just it. Well, what they call the uh, proverbial motherships, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they take up a little spot in the backside of the moon somewhere, you know, some of them. And, you know, they send out recons every once in a while using these smaller rigs that come ro- roaring in through our atmosphere. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Well, let me throw this out to the two of you. We were discussing the fact that they could live far beyond our means. Do you think it's possible time doesn't even affect them? Do you think? Well, they, there is. You know, it, when maybe, you're traveling at the speed of light. It, well, this is it. You know, yeah. traveling at the speed of light is only a, only a, a long time for the observer, not for the traveler. You know, and, and once you go faster, you know, you're you're into time. Yeah, you just you just continue on being what you were. You know, and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe it takes you three or four months to travel one spot to the other, which could be light years, you know, many, many, many light years at the speed of light. Yeah. But uh, your relatives back home, you know, and the, or the people here, for them, uh, you know, maybe a thousand years has passed or, yeah. or ten years or five years or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you, you know, your relatives could be dead and uh, your grandchildren are dead and all that sort of thing from the planet you left. Uh, by the time you return, and maybe even the people sent you out there in the first place don't even remember sending you. I wonder who the heck you are, you know. Do you think there has been an effort by them, or perhaps one of the species in particular, to communicate with us beyond an observance? Well, I don't know. It's uh, whether they need to, you know. Uh, well, that's maybe a good they point. Just don't figure we're smart, uh, uh, smart enough yet, or moved along enough yet mm-hmm. to, to jar us. With the with the knowledge of their presence, you know, uh, I you know, and I'm not one that believes that they they're here to save us from ourselves or save us from the galaxy. Um, personally, I think any species that's a, that's a, uh, arisen on some planet somewhere is uh, it has come up pretty much the same way as we we did, and that means that one species had need another species, you know, in order to survive. And you know, on the very molecular level, that's that what happened, and uh, and uh, survival of the fittest. If you're going to go with Darwin. And um, and uh, they were probably violent in some part, part in their lifestyle. I mean, some of us, we're not all violent on this planet. No, I, I would no, we're not. I hazard to guess that probably 90, 90% of the planet is not violent. There's 10% on the planet that causes all the all the heartache and the and, and screwing with people's lives and so on, if, if you mm-hmm. ask me. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, gets everybody all up and gets everybody in an uproar. But uh, the uh, you know most of us just want to live a peaceful life. Uh, you know, every once in a while we go over the edge or something like that. You know, and get these crimes of passion and so on. But uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, basically for the most part, we just want to get on with our lives and raise our kids and do you know have you know try to get through it the best way we can and have some pleasant moments on the way. Yeah. But um, uh, you know, I suspect it's like that out there too. I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you, both you and and, uh, and Michelle have read books over the years, you know, about the uh, some species coming uh, to our planet and threatening to destroy our planet unless we change our ways. Well, mm -hmm. this island Earth, for starters, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, well, you must be clairvoyant because that was my next question to oh, yeah. to you both. Should we be afraid? Well, why don't you let Mike, Michael answer some of these topics? <laughs> I don't. Either. I don't think so. I, uh, reptilians. Well, from what I heard about the Brazilian cases about the reptilians with you know claw marks on people's backs when they're mm. abducted or whatever. I mean, who's to say? You know, if 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 they if we were meant to be done in, mm. we would have been done in a long time ago. That's a good point too, Mission. You know, um, and even to this day, I mean, I don't care what kind of weaponry we come up with, mm -hmm. we have no defenses against these people. Because the technology is so far advanced, it practically seems magical to our eyes, you know. I pretty much go along with that too. Yeah. I mean, nothing seems to phase mm -hmm. them anyway, and uh, no. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, like I said, malevolence. I can I we touch on abductions then for a second? Because I know people are just abducted, and, they are, and they are traumatized. I would, very but much it, so. Basically, what it, what it comes down to, it's more like a maybe a systematic laboratory rat kind of experiment or something maybe if they've had especially if they've had it, uh, their hands into our genetic development by tweaking us a little bit over 300,000 years let's say okay. to, to bring us to a level where we could eventually have trades with them like you know mm -hmm. whatever yeah. uh, that may be why they seem to think that they have rights over us in abducting us and checking on us every once in a while by taking a few samples here and there. That's why the rest of the population is not affected, and the people that are being abducted, it's generational. Yeah. So. Well, let's, here's another... Uh, uh, sure, go ahead. I no. lost the word. <laughs> okay. no, uh, uh, similarity, let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. You got some polar bear wandering around up near Churchill Falls. Mine's in his own business. He needs a snack, and he's, there's garbage dumps up ahead, and he's getting all excited about that. And he's sort of minding his own business as long as nothing gets in his way that's going to threaten uh, his his passage to the garbage dump. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, he feels a pin prick in his back or something like that. And then the next thing, he he's missing two hours of time, you know. <laughs> and what happened there, you know? And he's in a different location when he wakes up. He was outside Churchill. Now he's about 50 miles away out in the in the tundra somewhere, you know, near near near, uh, you know, some totally other, this a totally different place. It's not that far from uh, from the reality of what people report from the abduction phenomenon, you know. Really, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a great analogy, and, Don. That's a great what? analogy. Yeah, analogy is the word I was hunting for earlier, and I should mm -hmm. know that being a writer and everything. But the uh, but you know, there's uh, that comes up quite often, you know, and uh, I've you know other people have used that. Uh, example as well and look at the difference in the intelligence between us and a polar bear well maybe the 
uh, you can expand upon that going in the other direction, the difference between our intelligence and their intelligence and how they think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just another polar bears of them, you know? Yeah. And no special need to, um, you know, punish us, and maybe there is some roughnecking going on there. If there's anything um, Mm -hmm. I don't agree with, though, is that this thing isn't, that this is a pleasant experience for these people who are claiming abduction. I've never had one of the people that I've had who claim abduction say that these are these are the space people, our space brothers, and they're mm. all all benevolent and all this, and they're mm. just here to help us. Mm-hmm. None of them have ever said that. No. Most of them have been very, you know, uh, profane about their association with these things and what they don't want happening to them anymore. And I, I, you know, I find that in a lot of the literature too, and these are serious stuff. There's a lot of fringe stuff out there. I'm sure people have to be careful of that. Be more selective about what they pick up. They're going to read about, uh, not just take my word for it. I mean, I'm sure they can use their own heads in this matter. But, and I'm sure you guys probably, uh, you know, with the same, you've got the same opinion. I, I don't know what put words in your mouth, but uh, from from what I've read and you know, and and interacting with Michael or Michelle, I should say. Yeah over the years on the internet that you know I don't think he has that you know pie in the ice pie in the sky attitude towards the no. benevolent space brothers either yeah well let me put it to you guys again here in Laurentian University we have a very famous scientist his name is Dr. Persinger yeah he Mike. has he has tried to recreate various Mike. phenomena in a yeah. test situation yeah He's trying to say basically that it's the magnetic pull on various parts of your brain to that extent. I'm just giving a quick overview because I want to get to the question. How do you feel about that being put forward? Well, um, are you asking me or Michelle? Both. Uh, oh, yeah. Who would ever like to go first? You can go first, Don. Uh, okay, well, actually, um, uh, Mike Persinger used to be on UFO updates some years ago. I don't know if you remember that, Michelle. Really? You know, he would interact with us about this. uh, Well, it was the Earth fleet things. He was, uh, you know, the stress, stress, uh, tectonic plates and so on, and creating uh, uh, what he called. I think he he was the one calling them Earth lights, which were, you know, balls of energy that floated around in the air, you know, shortly before or during an earthquake and so on and so forth. And he actually created. uh, was able to prove this by creating some uh, uh, experiment uh, by having by uh, performing experiments in laboratories on a very minimal basis. Of course, mm. different kind of a thing. But these things were, short, excuse me, <coughs> short-lived. Very short-lived. Yeah, very mm. short-lived uh, during the, in, in their experimentation, and uh, um, uh, you know, I don't think they could account for. I don't say that it doesn't happen, you know, um, but I don't think they can account for uh, the. You know, a lot of the sightings that have, of solid objects, you know, have seen in the sky, you know, by various people. Yeah, doing right uh, angle turns at 10,000 miles an hour. Yeah, right, yeah. and so on and so forth. You know, uh, and uh, I know he's doing, done some work in, a, in the abduction area. Well, at least trying to create uh, maybe uh, something in the brain that could be, and he has done yes. that, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm not... You know, I'm not I'm not a defender of the abduction phenomena, other than the fact that I've got several people I've known for years who are good friends now, who mm-hmm. have had you know this experience. So I, you know, I I sort of lean in their direction on it, but I, I'm not an expert in the abduction field. I, I I don't even know if I'm an expert in the other side of it really, but I know a lot more about uh, 
aviation and how things fly and, and things go on and interaction between aircraft and these things and than uh, I do about the abduction phenomenon. Yeah. And, uh, I have invited Dr. Persinger on this show, but I'm going to look into trying getting him back on, and perhaps I can set you up, and the two of you can give your own perspectives on yeah, your ideas. There again, you know, like he's that. a scientist, and I'm just, uh, you know, this nutball hanging around down here in Nova Scotia. <laughs> he probably uh, far ever talked me under nutball. the table. But, well, uh, yeah, yeah, because I, I, my my greatest fear is always being shot down by this guy. Because I did go to one of his presentations once because I I knew he was going to talk about UFOs, but basically he was using it underneath the uh, auspices of Earth lights or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And nobody else that I knew wanted to pay the twelve bucks to go. I said, well, I'll go there as a sacrificial lamb and yeah. go. And I felt like a lamb in a den in the lion's den. I was like, I, I I stood up, I mm -hmm. shook, I sh I was shaking like a leaf. I stood up and I. After his presentation, I basically said, you know, on behalf of everybody who's ever seen a UFO, I, think, I personally think you're full of crock. Oh, yeah? And, okay. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I did get a pat on the back from Chris Rutkowski about that. So. Yeah. <laughs> Good oh, for good. you. I think yeah. he's been able to recreate certain phenomena for certain mm -hmm. people. But across the board, there's just too plus, much. Plus the sensory deprivation. I mean, his helmet covers, like, your eyes are, are, mm -hmm. are you know, blindfolded. Your yeah. ears are completely plugged. You can't hear anything. You can't, you know, if we were to, 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 to do that a day-by-day -day basis, mm -hmm. we'd have to be walking outside with a helmet like that, being led by somebody and, and yeah. experiencing the same thing he's trying to say that well, this is, is happening, it. you know? This is it. It's, it's well, just, that. That sort of an experiment reminds me of the old days of George Carlin back in the 60s when he said that uh, they were talking about uh, marijuana causes brain damage. <laughs> he, he said if you take a mask and you stick it on a, on a rat and you make it breathe cannabis fumes for about 24 hours, of course it's going to cause brain damage. It's not getting any oxygen, you know. So, you know, uh, maybe that's going a little further than the... Uh, um, than what Mike Persinger is doing with his experiments, but yeah, yeah I mean you have to uh, have to wonder. These are people, as, as far as the abduction phenom phenomenon goes, are minding their own business, driving in their car. They're not always. They're yes. not, uh, there's probably a misperception out there by a lot of people who know or who travel. You know, look at the fringes of the the abduction phenomena or the UFO phenomena that think that this is something that happens to people when they go to sleep at night. You know, so it's sleep paralysis. Paralysis, paralysis or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But as you both know, this is not true. No, well, you can be it. driving along the road, you know, and all of a sudden you see this thing in the sky, and the next thing you know, two hours later, you're mm -hmm. you're in an entirely different place, and your shorts are on backwards, and, you know, you don't have any shirts left, buttons left on your shirt or something like that, and you're sitting in the back seat of your car, you know, and you don't know what happened. Yeah, and you're and, uh, and this stuff mm -hmm. will start coming out maybe years later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, or you happen to be... Standing alongside of your mother at your summer camp, and you're and you're you know seven or eight years old, and she's you know in her thirties, and you're both looking out the window at the beautiful owls standing on your front porch, and they're four feet tall, and there's four of them there staring at you, and uh, this sort of thing. You know, these are mm -hmm. this is stuff that you know I've encountered, not me personally, but uh, people that I know have encountered. You know, yeah. uh, told me they've encountered, and. Uh, Don, it's the bottom of the hour. Yeah. Just let me read out these universities again. But okay. when we come back, Shag Harbor. Okay. Canada's Roswell. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. 
You are listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University in Sudbury, beautiful Sudbury. And we broadcast every Wednesdays between 3 and 5 in the afternoon and 10 at midnight at night. Caper Radio, Kent Britain University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, Wednesdays from 3.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon, CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Sunday night at midnight. CJMQ 88.9, the voice of the Eastern Township, Sherbrooke, Quebec, Saturdays from 9 to 11 in the evening. CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, of course. Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings at 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario. Sunday nights, Monday mornings, three shows back-to-back, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. CKXU 88.3 FM, University of Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Alberta, Friday night at midnight. CIVL 88.7 FM, University of the Fraser Valley, Abbotsford, B.C., Thursdays at 2 in the afternoon and Friday mornings at 2 a.m. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, if you want a focal point for the show to go to, you can download for free all the archives of all the shows that we've done since October when we first started to record them. Also there you're going to find a plethora of information on all our guests, links to their sites, links to their books, all kinds of things like that. There is pictures there. There are stories that people have sent in for me to post on the website. For example, right now there's one up there about a haunted house in Montreal that you're going to really appreciate. Uh, As I said, there's photos up there. There's a whole photo spread of photos for the UFO phenomena that's taken place in and around Sudbury. Send me your photos. Send me your stories if you've had any experiences that are paranormal conspiracy oriented that's fine there's a email right there on the website you're listening to night fright your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio the time is now and now your host brent holland folks we are speaking with michel deschamps ufoologist mufon provincial director we're also speaking with the reputable Don Ledger, all the way from Nova Scotia. He's live on the phone right now. And true to form, let's go right into Shag Harbor, Canada's Roswell. Don, I was wondering if you could walk us through it. Um, yeah, sure. Of course, ours would be wet, uh, Roswell. Ours <laughs> takes place on the water. but And theirs was in a desert, you know. Yeah, October the 1947, October the 4th, uh, 1967, in Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. Shag Harbor's on the south, uh, south shore of Nova Scotia, just as Nova Scotia's shore starts to turn around and go over towards Yarmouth at the very bottom corner of it. <clears throat> and it's, um, in the neighborhood of Cape Sable Island and, uh, and a few other small communities in that area. It's a small fishing village, still is. Hasn't changed much since back in 1967 either. Hmm. So, on on that night, about uh, somewhere around between quarter after and 25 after 11 that evening, that night, it was a cool, clear night, uh, lots of stars, no moon, 
pretty calm, even the ocean surface and the on the western side of Shag Harbor itself, the western approach in, which is called the Sound, which is where actually everything actually happened. Well, at least part of it happened anyway. Um, uh, on the east side of uh, of Shag Harbor, uh, uh, Lori Wickens and his friend and three three female companions uh, were driving back from a function over in Cape Sable Island. Now, Cape Sable Island actually has a causeway going out to it, so it's joined to the mainland, so okay. the reason for the car. And uh, as they're driving along uh, on the highway heading uh, heading southwest, uh, they notice um, just on the before they enter Shake Harbor from the eastern side, they notice uh, four to five sequentially flashing lights in a line traveling along parallel to the to the old highway number three. Uh, as they're moving along, and uh, so they they start keeping an eye on this thing, and as they <clears throat> the fir- as they watch it, it gets a little further ahead of them, curves around in front of the car at quite a distance, not very close. As we're talking about maybe uh, uh, you know a thousand feet, two thousand feet, okay, um, up in the sky, and it starts to curl over towards the harbor, turn towards uh, the water. So they get into Shag Harbor. The water's on their left side, and uh, and they go through the community. They're keeping an eye on this thing, and, and Lori's pressing the pressing the car along a little bit uh, to uh, to keep up with this thing because he doesn't want to lose sight of it. And they're, mm-hmm. You know, because they're really concerned. What's this? What the heck is this thing anyway? And uh, actually, I think they had it in their head that it might be uh, an airliner. And uh, when they got around uh, to the south side, oh, so the west side of Shag Harbor, got out the other side of it, uh, uh, and Closer to the, uh, you know, they're moving away from the ocean because there's a point going out there, which is called, uh, uh, good Lord, I've forgotten the name of the point, uh, Maggie Garen's point. And, uh, and then it, the, 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 wa- the water comes in again up to the highway, uh, right on the very edge of the highway at a, an area called a, what they call the Irish moss plant. But before they got to that area, they saw the thing disappear from behind the tree line, going, pointing down at this point now at about a 45-degree angle, and it looks like it's heading down towards the water. So they, he speeds up, gets around that corner just after they lost it past the tree line. One of the girls thought she heard a whoosh and a bang uh, type of noise. Mm. Um, they pull off the side of the road at the Irish moss plant, which is still there, but it's not an Irish moss plant anymore. It's a gravelly parking lot. Mm-hmm. And they get out of the car and they look out on the water and they see this yellow light uh, above, slightly above the water, just sort of drifting on the water, a pale yellow light. How far out would it be? Oh, uh, at this point it's only about 800 feet offshore. Oh, that's all. Yeah. And uh, so they watch this thing and they're getting concerned about it. And uh, <clears throat> so they decide they better report it. Get back in the car. Rory Wickens is only 18 years old at this time, or as, as, at the age of his friend and uh, uh, some of the girls there. So they go tearing off down the, uh, <clears throat> to the down the road a little further, about a quarter of a mile into Lower Woods Harbor. These little ports aren't very far apart from one another. Where there's a gas station with a payphone out front. So they he calls the the RCMP station back in uh, Barrington Passage, which is again on the east side of Shag Harbor. I see. Uh, and uh, gets a hold of Corporal uh, Werbicki, Victor Werbicki. Um, he uh, he takes a report from him. he uh, Lori tells him he thought that a, an airliner might have just crashed into Shea, into the harbor into the sound just just uh, west of Shea Harbor and I, again I stress that this is like 
you know, we're only talking about a thousand feet between the harbor and the and the and the and the, and the waters of Shag Harbor. Not, it's not much of a distance. Okay. Um, the um, so Lori, uh, the first thing that Rebecca asked him, they asked him if he's been drinking, and uh, of course Lori said, "No, I haven't been drinking." He's a, a young fisherman, so mm-hmm. uh, maybe that was the reason for the question at the time. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, these, you know, these these fellows started up and they're like 16 years old. Uh, you know, most of them uh, back in those days, uh, you know, probably didn't finish high school or something, and became businessmen. You know, some very wealthy ones at that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, uh, Lori said, "No, I haven't been drinking." Uh, and in the meantime, uh, Rebecca's phone starts to ring, and uh, so he uh, gets the phone number from Lori Wickens and tells him to stay put at the phone because he might call him back. And he hangs up, and then he picks up the other line, and it's a woman over Omega Garrens Point, which is they've just gone by themselves, um, which is the one that sticks out between Shag Harbor and the Sound. And she says she thought an air, airplane had just crashed into the into the Sound. Oh, yeah. So it, well, That makes perfect sense. That was perfect. That makes perfect sense. That's yeah. what I would suspect also. Then a fellow over in Beer, Isle, uh, Beer Point, uh, which, is on the, uh, which is on the east side of Shag Harbor, sticking out, uh, Calls in and says that he thought he just saw an airplane crash into the, into Shag Harbor. From his position, it could have been in the waters of Shag Harbor. And then a woman and her daughter also called in to say from Cape Sable Island, which is 13 miles away, and saying the same thing that they thought they saw an airplane crash mm. into the harbor over Shag Harbor way. So now he's taking this serious. He calls up Lori and he says, "Look, you better get back to the, the Irish Moss plant and keep an eye on this thing for me, will you? And I'll get some, you know, some of the boys together and we'll get down there." Now, he had a couple of uh, other Mounties, uh, Ron Pond and Ron O'Brien. Uh, Ron O'Brien was the uh, senior uh, constable on duty, where Victor Rubicki is a, was a, is a corporal, so he ranks them, and that's pretty high rank in uh, you know, the Mounties. And uh, he calls them by radio, because they're out, uh, somewhere down in Lower Woods Harbor, uh, staking out a clearing down there looking for deer jackers. Uh, and... Uh, you understand the concept of deer jackers here, because down in the states it's like poachers or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. load at nights with a flashlight, trying to catch deer, because they stare at the light and then they shoot them. And um, so, and they use the money. They 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 use these things. They sell the, the meat, you know, to various people like deer meat, I guess. But anyway, in this particular instance, um, <clears throat> he gets them back, and they come roaring back. Probably go right by Rory Wickens and, uh, and his. Uh, his company down in uh, in the, the Irish Moss plant to, to meet up with him back at the uh, detachment. And when he gets out, he tells him what's going on. He thinks an airplane might have crashed down that way. I don't know. I just didn't get him to meet him at the at the, at the Irish Moss plant, but that's, there you go. So they all go roaring back down to the Irish Moss plant and, uh, to see what's going on there. In the meantime, you've got uh, Dave Kendrick and uh, Norm, Norman Smith. They're both around 17, 18 years old, driving back to the same place. From Cape Sable Island, and uh, mm-hmm. coming into from the east side of Shag Harbor, and they see the thing in the sky. Uh, I'm trying to cut this down a bit because you know we wrote a whole book about this, and I, you know, I can take two hours trying to tell the story, <laughs> and uh, there's so much detail to it. I so, know, I know. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, uh, again, they see the same phenomenon in the sky, crossing across the sky, uh, you know, going along uh, alongside of the road. Uh, Dave Kendrick is driving the car, so he doesn't get as much of a good look at it as Norm Smith, who's in the passenger seat. But it's a weedy old road down there anyway, even even now. Uh, so you've got to keep your eyes on the road when you're driving. It's going up little hills and around little turns and so on. 
Um, Sounds so, like Sudbury to a certain yeah. degree. TransCanada. No, yeah. I wasn't making light. TransCanada goes through here, and you have to be careful too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, they um, they keep it in sight, and uh, uh, then they lose sight of it. And uh, Dave Kendrick drives, uh, mm-hmm. uh, leave, drops off Norm Smith at his uh, at his father's place, and um, he continues on home, tells his mother about it, and he goes to bed. But in the meantime, Norm Smith, when he's walking into the house after uh, after Dave Kendrick left him, uh, he sees the thing again in the sky. He goes in and gets he gets his father up, and he comes out and has a look at it, and this thing looks like it's heading down into Shea Harbor. Um, now, there's an, a bit of an anomaly here that bothered me for some time until mm. I, you know, later years, I was able to find out there was that there's possibly more than one object involved here. Um, because they came, uh, he got his father up, and uh, his father came up, and they were concerned, and they figured they'd better head down to the harbor because this might be an airplane crashing or something. Mm-hmm. When they were getting ready to get into their car, the Mountie cars went tearing by them with their lights going and heading down to Shake Harbor. Now, this thing is already on the water, and they've already been alerted, you know, many minutes before. We're talking 10, 15 minutes before, before these people are getting into their car to go down and to see what might be happening. Anyway, they hmm. hop in the car and they follow the Mountie cars down to Shea Harbor. And um, yeah, so there's an anomaly here with this, this thing having been in the sky after it was supposedly had after it had supposedly gone into the water. Now, but don't don't forget now all the time everybody mm-hmm. here is thinking that an airplane crashed in, in the south. No UFO mentioned. So the Mounties arrive on scene. Um, they see the light out on the water. Uh, they, they think first that they maybe they should take, there's a dory tied up over at the Irish Moss Plant. Mm-hmm. They think maybe they should row in that and see if they could offer assistance. This thing's a little bit further out now. Um, uh, Victor Rubicki gets uh, one of uh, Ron Pond, the, the junior Mountie, the rookie, I guess they called him at the time, to wander around through some of the people who are now gathering on the scene. Uh, to ask some questions and so on. In the meantime, they decide maybe they should go out and see if they could contact uh, the RCC in, Halifax, RCC in Halifax, which is a rescue coordination center, and see if there are any aircraft missing, And uh, uh, which uh, Victor Rubicki tells, uh, uh, orders uh, Ron Pond, Ron O'Brien to do. And he, in the meantime, uh, Victor Rubicki himself is going to go to a house nearby and see if he can uh, line up a couple of fishermen, maybe get a boat to go up there. Don't forget, they didn't have the communications back in 67 like no, they do nowadays. Absolutely. They had radio to ra- car, radio mm-hmm. to car, radio, but they didn't have any way of getting on uh, into some kind of a net or a system. And um, and no cell phones. Yeah, no cell phones or any of that sort yeah. of thing. So um, the um, in the meantime, just before they leave, the light disappears, and um, uh, and they assume either this light sunk, or it went out on its own volition, or something. Uh, this thing went underwater under its own volition. They don't know what happened there. So uh, there's a, more of a, a sense of urgency going on here now because of this. And uh, so uh, Ron, uh, Victor Rubicki goes to his place uh, to a house looking for some fishermen. He contacts uh, Lawrence Smith. And uh, Brad Frechand, who were the uh, who threw another fisherman, who told him that they were the last two boats tied up at the uh, government dock over in Shag Harbor, and it would be easier to get them out, so they should contact them. Hmm. So they do. Uh, and to make a long story short. Fifteen minutes later, you've got a bunch of guys showing up down at the government wharf, 
uh, a jetty, quite long, big, big L-shaped thing, you know, with a bunch of fishing boats tied up in it. And the two boats that go out are Bradford Chan and Lawrence Smith. Lawrence Smith is the first boat out, the second boat out is uh, Bradford Chan. They turn westward at the dock and uh, head towards the western approach, the western entrance in the Shag Harbor, which many years later is silted up and you can't get out that way. But I understand now they've been uh, uh, dredging that dredging out. Mm-hmm. So they travel out across the water from the, the western approach, out across the sound to where they're being told that this thing was last seen. Um, now, there are buoys out there, a lighted buoy, which everybody knew, knew about, including the young fishermen. They all knew where the buoys were. They knew where the little lighthouses were. They knew where the lighthouse was off of an island that stretches along uh, uh, parallel to the coast, but out from uh, uh, Shea Harbor's western approach, about a mile and a half, uh, leaving a, 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 what they call the Sound, which is about a mile and a half wide. And they bear down on what they thought might be the possible location, uh, all the time thinking that, you know, what they find over there is probably going to be a bunch of uh, bodies and bits and pieces or maybe mm. survivors if they're, if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but in the meantime, before they, that happens, they run across a big swath of foam that's out on the water. It's about uh, three to four inches thick, glittery yellow on the top, looks like shaving cream, about 80 feet wide, two boat lengths wide and about a half a mile long they figure traveling out uh, along the sound now all of these guys are fishermen and uh, or have been around the water mm-hmm. all their lives and they all swear this stuff wasn't sea foam it wasn't anything like sea foam it was more like shaving cream hmm. with a glittery yellow surface on it uh, they didn't like to sail into it uh, they called it sail even though they're motoring in you know with gasoline motors and those mm-hmm, and, um, and and were suspicious of it. Uh, there was some roiling going in the water. They some people report some of them reported. A couple of the uh, one of the young fishermen that was on Ron O'Brien's boat, uh, who since turned out to be uh, Norm Smith, because he'd done this. And uh, once we got the you know the detail from both witnesses, started putting two and two together. We asked questions, and it turned out it was Norm Smith. It stuck his arms down in the water to try to scoop some of the foam up, but uh, nothing came up in his hands. And Nor- Ron O'Brien says, I examined this young fisherman's huh. arms, and there was nothing on them. They didn't seem to be slick. There was no smell or anything to them. Um, uh, one of them threw a bucket overboard, but nothing came up in the bucket. It was kind of huh. weird. They searched around out there and were eventually joined, uh, uh, you know, about 30 minutes later by, about, uh, by another four fishing boats that came out. And and eventually, about an hour and ten minutes later, the Coast Guard cutter that was over in uh, Cape Clark's Harbor in Cape Sable Island, uh, the Coast Guard cutter, cutter 101, um, steamed over uh, on its diesels. It took it about, because it could only travel at about ten knots and 13 miles away, it took it about an hour to get there. So, Don, up to this point, no debris, no nothing. survivor, nothing, just the foam. That's it, yeah. Huh. They're really puzzled at this point. They figure they should see something. The Coast Guard cutter arrives, and they ask the first person they ask for is Ron O'Brien, and he's because he's uh, uh, Victor Rubicki uh, designated him the on-scene commander, and that's what they do in a search. There's always one, and it's always the RCMP oh, that are designated the on-scene commander. Okay, and they direct the search uh, until somebody, uh, maybe possibly more knowledgeable or whatever, comes comes uh, comes on scene. But they have to have an authority on scene at least to take charge of the scene, and uh, they ask to see, they ask to talk to him. And when he gets over to the boat, uh, they tell him that the, his request through RCC 
for uh, about any other missing aircraft or anything like that has turned up absolutely nothing. There's nobody missing, nothing missing that they know of, all up and down the coast. And this goes right down into Maine and uh, all the way up into Newfoundland. No, no aircraft missing, nothing from uh, you know the continent or anything like that. And this is the middle of the Cold War, too, folks. Yeah, Don't forget yeah. that, too. There's only a 12-mile limit in those days, not 200 miles like we have offshore now. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, people are then asking themselves, well, what the heck are we looking for here? Uh, the report goes right on up through the system. It goes up to uh, the air desk in Ottawa because the RCC contacted them to ask them if they had any military uh, uh, reports uh, 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 of aircraft missing and so on and so forth. Uh, the Air Desk in Ottawa is also, back in 1967, was the receiver of UFO reports from the military. Uh, and uh, and the RCMP would port them into the military, and they'd go to the Air Desk in Ottawa. And uh, the Air Desk in Ottawa, who was, which was being manned at this particular evening by uh, Squadron Leader William Baines, uh, said no. And uh, they started taking reports, and they started... Uh, Assembling because they had something missing in the harbor down in Shag Harbor that people were claiming originally was a was an aircraft, and they couldn't ignore that. They um, put certain things into motion involving the fleet diving unit in Halifax. They were lining up divers and vessels and so on uh, to uh, to go down to the site. And of course, it takes time to to steam down to these places from Halifax, say, oh, uh, yeah. which is where the fleet diving unit mm-hmm. was. And uh, so you've got um, uh, a lot of people are alerted at this time. Now this is a natural, uh, this is natural and systematic. Uh, I find uh, quite a few similarities between that and what happened with the Swiss Air Down scenario when the aircraft crashed off of. Uh, uh, well, they say Peggy's Cove, but it was a little a little further south than that. But um, this is the same uh, situation everybody went through. Fishing boats were, were some of the first boats tasked to go out and look because they're the quickest ones to get there. Uh, as well as naval vessels or any Coast Guard vessels that are in the area. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, you know, searches are being done. Uh, with this, you know, since it was an air disaster to begin with, it was already a foregone, foregone conclusion that a plane had crashed. And the RCMP get involved in the, in the, in the quasi-military uh, unit at the RCC, uh, naval units and so on and so forth. And uh, But anyway, in this case... Um, we don't. They don't know what they're looking for. So the first documents that come out uh, issued is telexes and so on down to Halifax to alert Maritime Command from uh, uh, from uh, headquarters in Ottawa are, are telling them that an you know that an, uh, something went down into Shag Harbor and uh, on the margins on the side of the report are uh, underlined by three lines and one of the reports is marked UFO. Hmm. And it becomes a UFO, and then it's also called a dark object, hence the name for the book that we wrote, Dark Object, by the uh, by the RCAF in those days. Don't forget the RCAF was t- the Royal Canadian Air Force was still the radio- Royal Canadian Air Force up until 1968, when the unification with our friend Paul Hellyer mm-hmm. went on and they mm-hmm. changed it all over. And they become the Canadian Air Force, or the air element of the Canadian Armed Forces. So, But it was still the RCAF in those days. Uh, in that, uh, during the, the, the latter part of that year, so now we've got a weird uh, thing going on. The amount uh, uh, we've got, uh, we're quickly into uh, October the fifth now, which is Thursday. It was a Wednesday night when this thing started. We got Thursday. Uh, in the meantime, that night, uh, starting off before even the Shag Harbor, and since there are numerous UFO reports all over the south, southern end of Nova Scotia, 
you drew a line from Halifax across to uh, Truro uh, on the other side of the province uh, at the end of the Bay of Fundy. Sulfurd from that area, there was, uh, you know, at least 30 to 40 UFO reports that we know. Wow. But some of them were very sketchy reports. But uh, they um, eventually, uh, uh, we we learned of some of them, uh, you know, through the um, National Archives, the, the UFO reports that re re were released through the National Archives. Mm -hmm. And this goes back quite a few years ago. I mean, I was looking at those things. 7,700 of them uh, from the National Research Council through to the National Archives back in 1997. 7,700 files you went through? 7,700 files. These oh were UFO God. reports that uh, the you know that were amassed in uh, in the Canadian files. Now they're I guess they're up around 9,500. Wow. Um, and uh, so anyway, I, I I dug out many reports. Uh, Chris and I, he'd done it. He'd, he'd been through the line. Well, Library loaner system first, and he was the. Uh, it's Chris Stiles, folks. This, hmm? Chris Stiles. Yeah, Chris Stiles, mm -hmm. co-author of our book. Right. Uh, he'd been onto this case uh, probably a good fourteen months before I got involved, and uh, he sort of dragged me into it to begin with. And uh, he'd uh, just, you know, found some of the witnesses, and then uh, I found the Mounties. And when I got involved, and I found uh, Victor, or I found uh, actually we found Norm Smith together uh, by accident when we were interviewing Dave Kendry. We didn't even know about Norm Smith; nobody did. But he was he was on scene. He was through, went through the whole thing, right? Mm. And um, but uh, anyway, you know, we between the two of us and me re-interviewing Chris in order to, to write the book. Cause I did the majority of the writing on the book. He wrote a couple of chapters uh, to do with the sightings program and. Uh, and another event that happened down in 1970 in, in the Shea Garber area. And, uh, but to do the book, I had to re-interview uh, re I had to re -interview him and uh, re-interview everybody he'd interviewed, uh, almost everybody anyway, and uh, so I could write the book so I could get it straight in my own head, plus, you know, the people I'd found and so on. You know, about 3 o'clock in the morning, the fishermen knocked it off and uh, decided to go back home because they were tired. They'd, they'd been up since, uh, three, you know, 3 o'clock. 24 hours, yeah. This morning. Yeah, they get up early and they go to sea, you know, pretty early. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host... Brent Holland. Don, and, uh, Michelle has a quick question for you about Chris. Sure, yeah. Yeah, wasn't Chris uh, a, site, uh, a witness himself? No. No? Not a witness to the uh, Shea Herb incident. That's a misnomer on the back of the book. Oh, okay. We were, I was away on vacation, and I think Chris was away or at work or something when the, because he, he, he didn't work, uh, he worked uh, as, a, uh, as a caregiver back in those days, mm -hmm. and he used to stay with a guy for about five or six days on end before he got home. And, and they had sent us the, uh, the the cover proofs. I was away on vacation, Chris was away, and neither one of us got to them in time to change that little blurb on the back that says Chris Stiles, who himself is an actual witness. Uh, he was a witness, all right, the, the, the night of the Shag Harbor incident to a UFO incident in Halifax, not to... Uh, not to the one in Shag Harbor, but it was a pretty good one that he was involved with. Uh, observed uh, apparently by a couple of other people who, who, the next day their reports were reported in the newspaper. Uh, there's too many different details to get into with on the Shag Harbor instance to to squeeze in here tonight. But uh, um, this thing uh, eventually. Uh, 
came to a conclusion, you know, uh, not conclusion, but uh, uh, that night, uh, as as far as the search went, and then more more searchers went out the next day, and then by Friday by noontime, the divers had finally made it into uh, Shag Harbor, uh, and were set up and ready to go, and they searched the bottom of the sound in that area, uh, almost up to, uh, for about six hours looking for something, they couldn't find anything, they were ready to give up, but were told to stay on scene until further notice which has probably has something to do with the larger event that was going on, uh, not only at Chegg Harbor, but further up the coast in Shelburne, you know, and the, uh, with the two different uh, objects on the bottom and the ships camped out over these things on the bottom uh, for about seven days and so on. Again, like I say, I, there's really not enough time to go into this whole story, um, but you know it's in the book. Actually, the book had, uh, had been gone out of print, but it's back in print again. Dell has reissued it. Great. And uh, so it's out there. And uh, I know you can order it from various. I haven't seen it show up yet on uh, Amazon.com or Canadian Amazon for that matter. Maybe it is. I haven't looked in the last few weeks, but um, it might still be. It's still out there. Uh, they're still selling it at uh, at Dell. So because. Uh, Cindy Nickerson, who is the chairman of the Shag Harbor UFO Incident Society, which I should mention is on on the 14th and the 15th on Shag Harbor this year, with the speakers being on the 15th, and uh, you can access that from uh, if you go right straight through to uh, shagharborufo.com. If you spell it with a U, Shag Harbor with a U, that's her. Uh, but even if you uh, spell it with a Shag Harbor without the U, as is in the book, the American spelling, it, it still will put you through to the site, and it gives you all the details of who's speaking, you know, and con- uh, and the timetable and so on. And who is speaking this year, Don? Uh, well, again, I'm back. Chris Stiles is back, and Stan Friedman, Stanton Friedman, and uh, David uh, uh, Savet, who is a, a, uh, runs a diving outfit, and he has been looking at uh, diving on a little area right off the end of... Uh, uh, of, sh- of the sound uh, where there's some kind of an anomaly on the bottom that was seen on uh, on uh, sonar scans that Chris would like to look at and uh, he uh, I don't, uh, but I don't think it's happened the weather has always been iffy and, and bad out there but we'll find out anyway when he when, when he Jerry Kerber so those are the four uh, we had to cut it down from last year because we didn't have enough time to squeeze everything in in the day so um, Stanton Freeman will be talking about UFOs and science, or flying saucers and science, I should say, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll be speaking about maritime UFO files. Chris will probably be speaking about the Shag Harbor incident and David Savet about uh, these anomalies or whatever, if there are anomalies there. And, of course, the uh, little two, the UFOs interacting on the bottom, about 80 feet of water off of Government Island there, and uh, Government Point uh, at Shelburne with the two objects on the, on the bottom. And there was nothing ever found at the bottom. Uh, pardon me? There was nothing ever found by the Canadian government officially. Officially, no, yeah. Uh, you know, some of the fishermen around there said they saw uh, some of the divers bring up stuff, you know, from the bottom. Um, Do you give you know, credence to those reports? Around, huh? Do you give credence to those reports? Uh, yeah, because there, uh, there was uh, some material taken in the National, uh, the, the Naval Armament Depot in uh, Dartmouth across the harbor from Halifax. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, by uh, Maurice, Maurice Coffey uh, uh, had mentioned this. Uh, he was uh, from the Defense Research Board back in those days. That's the government. I'm sure you've heard of DARPA in the United States. It's the Canadian equivalent of that in, the, in Canada. It's a 
it's a it's a it's a, it's not a military research um, organization. It's a it's a civilian research organization, mm-hmm. but that works closely with the military, developing you know whatever the military wants. So, um, has there been an extensive cover up? I don't know. It's uh, here in Canada. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to get information. That, you know, I, I envy the Americans. They they seem to be able to get uh, reports of their Freedom mm-hmm. of Information Act and stuff that we can't. You know, I've I've tried different times to get stuff for, through our access to information mm-hmm. in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all there's always some excuse. You know, we, there's not enough personnel to get that. We don't. You know, uh, I don't know. Maybe Michelle has run across this himself or, or yourself. But well, uh, yeah. you know, it's. It's it's hard to get information out of our government. And, yeah, uh, and and they keep coming up with this. Not, we don't have enough personnel to to look after this, you know, and it's going to cost a lot of money and so on. I don't have a lot of money. I wish Tell I me did. About money, it. But, yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, I'm sure everybody does. But anyway, that sort of brings you up to date on the first part of that uh, hmm. that uh, the incident, and then there's you know several days following after with some really weird stuff going on, and the, and the stuff that was going on that night. Or you know the incidents that were going on that night, or uh, you know it takes it's, it's just too much detail on, a, on 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 in two hours, you know. So. Yeah. yeah. Earlier, Brent and I were talking about whether or not there was um, something similar that happened in Nor- in Ontario. Yeah. And uh, some years back, before he passed away, I had a chance to talk to Leonard Stringfield. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he had given me some information just verbally over the phone that in uh, 1954 there had been a UFO crash just outside of Owen Sound. Oh, yeah. Which is uh, between here and Perry Sound on the way to Toronto. Yeah. And uh, I heard of another uh, report of an object that came down just outside of uh, the Army base uh, Petawawa, which is just on the border of Quebec and Ontario. Right up. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so things like that. It's very hard to get information, much less you know, uh, adequate details of the whole incident, you know. Yeah, well, it, you know, if it is an actual object crashing, mm-hmm. you have to wonder all the time whether he's crashing or just going into the water, you know. At Shag Harbor, I doubt anything crashed there. I think it landed on the water and then went under the water after yeah. a while. and probably just doing what these things do. To Normally, the noise, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and then just and, took off up to the sea yeah. or something. You know, there were other witnesses around that came out after the fact that we found out about or, or, uh, or relatives of the witnesses who had passed away to tell us that they had observed, uh, you know, and, and at least uh, a few different cases, different people had observed more than one object in the area that night. Uh, one, one of them thought they saw the moon and the UFO, and one of, the, one of them went down and landed on the water. Um, and uh, there was actually a couple... Right beside the Irish Moss plant, when the thing went in the water, and they watched the thing land on the water, mm. gently on the water. Uh, this only came out a couple of years ago. This is long after the book. There's more, lots of details yeah. come out since the book, and uh, came out. And uh, but it's you know like anything else, it's like trying to nail jello to the wall to nail down details on this. Yeah. People are getting older, and it's like Chris, uh, like Stan used to say about Roswell. You're it's right. a race with the undertaker exactly, you know, the, yeah. the, to get to get at the witnesses. Well, this is this thing happened mm-hmm. uh, in 1967. What have we got? 40, 43 years ago now. Well, 40, mm-hmm. yeah, 42 years true. ago. Yeah, and um, mm-hmm. and the people were in their 30s. They're in their 70s now, and uh, mm-hmm. 
their memories aren't what they used to be and so on. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, we do a lot of work on the conspiracies yeah. of the JFK. Files get lost. Even the yeah. official report that was done, done up by the RCMP in the Barrington mm-hmm. Passage got lost. Mm-hmm. We got some telexes, you know, that's you know that, where they interviewed people and so on. But that's not the full body report, which in this particular case probably ran on for twenty pages or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that got lost when they moved from uh, moved their uh, detachment from you know about a half a quarter mile down the road from where it used to be or just got lost or maybe got burned who knows because you know they were files mm-hmm. building mm-hmm. up yeah. we don't know what respect uh, ufo files have with the government and uh, you know in actuality uh, thinking you know again about the number of uh, about the how the air force and the military treats this and the government treats this mm-hmm. um judging by uh, the responses that there's no that these things have no significant uh there's no security significance to these things, that they're yeah. not a threat to uh, national, you know, to sovereignty or uh, the sovereignty of the country or, or our airspace or anything like that. Uh, the Americans say the same thing, and so do the British. It's almost like root work now. And I personally don't buy that. I think they're embarrassed by these things because they can't do anything about them. Exactly. It, particularly the United States has got the most, supposedly the most powerful country in the world with the biggest air force in the world, <laughs> and they can't do anything about no. it. So what else are you going to say? Exactly. You know, yeah. no, they're no significant military uh, or security uh, threat. They're not a significant security threat, but anything coming in, you know, uh, in a late airplane or any kind of an airplane that might be heading for a tall building in the United yeah. States, that's a security threat. Now, did, but uh, how do they know one from the other, you know? Yeah. Did you? It's, and, uh, it's a lot of nonsense, and I think it's because they're embarrassed by it, and they've been embarrassed by this since back in the Second World War, one, and they can't yeah. do anything about it. So yeah. they have to have come up with that. They want to get it off their back. But by the same token, it's probably a serious situation somewhere deep down in the air, in the uh, in, in the military uh, hier- hierarchy, uh, you know, uh, not in the United States, but probably here, and maybe in uh, in uh, the United Kingdom and all the other countries, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. France and mm-hmm. you know Russia and so on and so forth. Did Who you, knows? Did, <laughs> did, you know? did, did you and Chris? Did you and Chris file Freedom of Information Act requests in order to get those RCMP documents? Because I know I contacted Chris uh, years ago uh, because he had some RCMP documents that I did not have. Chris Chris no, I didn't, which ones are these for? Uh, for the Shag Harbor incident. Oh, no, we just got them off the, to the library loaner system. Those ones were already out there, uh, mm. the documents. and. Oh, yeah? uh, there's no documents, you know, for the for the second half, of what we call, you know, the story part of the Shake Harbor. Yeah. It's all anecdotal. That there's, you know, about ninety percent of it's military anecdotal yeah. uh, uh, witness te- testimony. So, um, hmm. one last quick question, because I know you have to go, and I'm looking yeah. at the time. Disclosure: We have a new president of the United States. Do you think we're any closer to disclosure? No, I don't think so. I don't think that'll. Uh, I don't think he has a need to know. Curiously <laughs> uh, uh, enough, I, at mm-hmm. some level, possibly he does, and then he's, things are explained to him to uh, um, to make it, uh, you know, impossible for him to, to to get any deeper into it. I'm not even sure he, he really cares one way or the other. The mm-hmm. new president, there, mm-hmm. you know, Clinton said he was going to do something about it. I'm sure Reagan probably tried because he had his own experience. That's what he Carter. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. And Carter also tried too. That's right. Carter, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Carter had his own, yeah. Um, again, that was explained away as Venus. And I think that's mm. not true. But, yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. you know, uh, I agree. Uh, Carter was actually uh, 
you know, uh, he, I think he, he was, what was his job in the military, in the in the navy. He was uh, in the in the nuclear part of the the navy. Uh, it was something like that, eh? Yeah, yeah. I think he he has some kind of a physics degree too. I I, I don't know if he's a full blown PhD or anything like that, but he wasn't involved in that sort of thing. I think this guy was a little smarter than that to think that well, there's Venus again. You know that yeah. that would be a of great value to us if they could somehow blot that planet out. <laughs> you know, so many people, just because that thing's in the sky, yeah. that, you know, oh, that's what it was. Or swamp know. gas. If doesn't I hear matter, swamp yeah. gas again, I'll go crazy. doesn't matter if yeah. it was some triangular object, you know, a half a mile on a side, you know. Exactly. Traveling 500 feet over some suburb, yeah. Venus was up, so that's what it must have been, you know. Yeah. Which is a relatively unbrilliant light in the sky. Yeah. It does look a little... You know, brighter than the other stars. You know, when it's up and running, but, geez, but he doesn't move on. around like. Uh, no. with a, People yeah. must be awful stupid if they can't figure that one out. Exactly. Yeah, like I, I want to thank you, Don, so much for coming on the show Not and a sharing your time with you us. Have me on, folks. Don Ledger. Parting words. Uh, well, no, I've uh, of late been uh, been involved in getting my house finished and getting it on the market and so on. So we'll be getting it on the market in a few days. Uh, anybody who wants to get into the site, uh, my site is just donledger.com, and they'll, that'll take it right to them, or and they can get a hold of me if they've got something they want to talk about, particularly pilots and so on. Okay. But I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> and I want to talk to you. I'll contact you off air just to let you know about your book on Flight 111. Oh, yeah. Okay, Maybe man. you can come back and at a later date and do a show specifically yeah. on what you found. I want to assure everybody, or remind everybody, or assure everybody that that has nothing to do with UFOs. This is straight aviation stuff and a bad accident, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. leading up to it, what happened during and after. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on, Don. Don Ledger, folks. I'd like to say goodbye to Michelle, too. It was nice talking yeah, to you. Take care, Don. And right, uh, give my too. regards to Chris Stiles. Pardon me? Give my regards to Chris Stiles. Will do, yeah. Thank you. Okay. I don't see him that often. We email once in the dog's age, but we, uh, we, we sort of go our own separate ways now. <laughs> <laughs> But you fellas take care and good night. Have a great evening, my friend. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye now. Bye. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Well, folks, that was riveting, my friend. Yeah. Don Ledger, ladies and gentlemen, was here... Live on the telephone from Nova Scotia with Michel Deschamps, and we were discussing Canada's Roswell, Shag Harbor. Yeah, I was on the edge of my seat when he was telling that I know. story. It's, it's a riveting story every time he tells it. It's Unbelievable. Like, yeah. yeah, and this happened right in Canada. Yeah, and yet people don't know about it. They seem not to know about it or be aware of it. Yeah, and I could tell in his voice he didn't want to give it away. He wanted to keep it in the book, and I understand that for yeah. sure. And guess who's going to go get the book? <laughs> You're looking at him right now. The book is called Dark Object, by the way, folks. And I've made the Night Fright Show the focal point, as I keep coming back to say, for all the links to get the author's books, to get to the author's website, etc. And the Night Fright website is www.nightfrightshow.com dot com triple w night fright show dot com and michelle's website's linked there also michelle we've got about uh well about 10 minutes left hmm. 
let's talk some more. Now, you've piqued my interest also because you mentioned Owen Sound tonight yeah. and a crash that took place there. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about the anomalies that took place in northern Ontario? Because I know you are the MUFON director, yeah. provincial yeah. section director. Yeah, provincial section director, yeah. Yeah. Um, Can we talk some more about that? Because you've really got my interest there's, peaked there's, now. Yeah, there's there's other stuff I uh, I never mentioned to you before. Um, no kidding. Yeah. What is this about, buddy? <laughs> How many shows well, have we done together and you're mentioning this now? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's because it's very it's very important because we're, we're, we live in the north and a lot of times, well, a lot of times, uh, I'd say... A good seventy to eighty percent of the population, they uh -huh. they they're outdoorsy. Sure, know? they'll go out hiking yeah. in the summer, snowshoeing in snowshoeing in the winter. There you go. Um, I've um, not just uh, here, but also from Elliott Lake. I've uh, in past years, I've gotten reports of uh, very unusual findings, uh, especially uh, during winter, where um, somebody snowshoeing or let's mm -hmm. say cross country skiing. Mm -hmm. Sure. We come across this um, this place where all of a sudden there's like a gigantic cookie cutter had just come down, and the snow is gone right down to the grass. So pristine snow, like a, and it's gone. A perfect circle, right and, to the grass. And we're talking snow that's about four feet deep. Okay. Holy and cow. the guy walks up to the edge of this and sees this circle that goes right down. It's like something sat down. Like whether it's a hot kettle or whatever, but something huge, like twenty feet across or whatever. And I've heard the same similar report. This is also this just place uh -huh. in Hanmer. Uh -huh. Really, the, just yeah, in Hanmer. Took place in Hanmer, uh, late seventies maybe. That's just a little north of Sudbury. I don't know what. Yeah, uh, 20, twenty kilometers. Twenty kilometers. Twenty miles. Yeah. Yeah. But I also heard a similar similar reports uh, near Elliott Lake. There's a lake out back behind Elliott Lake where two circles like that were found one winter. And again, Elliott Lake is what about a hundred kilometers from Sudbury? Um, Elliott Lake, I think it is. Yeah, maybe approximately, yeah, give or take. Within 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 two hours. I guess. Now I know we've discussed this. There's uranium there, and one of Canada's biggest uranium mines yeah. was up there. It's been closed down. Yeah. You think just out of speculation, you think that could have something to do with it, or I wouldn't be surprised because there has been cases in Sudbury here where um, uh, a man, for instance, was checking the uh, the tailings ponds. Oh, uh, sure. Perinko. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually came upon an object that lifted off the tailing pond and left a 50-foot diameter depression. For the folks that are, are unaware of what a tailing pond is, because I, I know I was before I came to Sudbury, can you just give it a quick overview, just tell them what it is? Well, I th basically, I think it's just a reservoir where they've... It, where the res what's, what's left of... The refining of the metals mm -hmm. is basically kept like out in nature. These would be ponds, but they're after over time they actually solidify. You can actually walk on them. That's right. So when, when, yeah, but initially yeah. when they're there, uh, it's best not to walk on because yeah, it'll be like quicksand, but like uh, the maybe the rock variety, I guess. Well, it's whatever. red hot. Also, well, it's yeah, like that lava, too. Right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's the okay. several. I imagine there's still some minerals. If if we had a more precise way of refining metals to even uh, um, a deeper level, so to yeah. speak, we could probably go back and collect whatever is left in the tailings pond and even pull out more minerals of whatever's been thrown out. So maybe this is, might be a focal point of interest for any passing UFOs that decides to say, "Well, let's check this out, see what's what's there," because um, not just uh, not just min, uh, mine sites, but uh, 
also uh, uh, like uh, nuclear power plants. Yes, have also been yes, uh, yes, an attraction. Yes. As a matter of fact, I just got reports uh, this week that there's been sightings in Blind River. And lo and behold, uh, a few yeah. years ago when I went to the reservation there, it turns out that I, I had heard before of an El Dorado nuclear power plant but did not know where it was. Well, now I know. It's in Blind River. Is that right? There's one that close? Yeah. As you come out from the reservation, the right. sign is right there across the street, I El Dorado Nuclear Power Plant. And I've just got a call about maybe two days ago that there's been sightings in Blind River. Right there. So I contacted the Mid-North Monitor, which is one of the local papers in Espanola, mm -hmm. hoping to post some kind of announcement. Uh, I intend on putting up a poster because what's going on, folks, is that the Ontario sightings, and more specifically Sudbury sightings and Manitoulin sightings, are making their way to a British Columbia website. And the host there is not very forthcoming with the information. Therefore, it is impossible for me to investigate these cases, uh, one, because I don't have the information, and the people out in Vancouver don't have the ability to investigate the cases because they do not occur in their own backyard. Local cases, yeah. And so I guess it's because it's alph alphabetically speaking. His website gets hit before mine. His starts with an H because it's Houston, British Columbia, oh, and mine is Northern Ontario UFO sighting. Well, folks, so. there you go. You know, if you're a trucker traveling across a Trans-Canada, I know for a fact there are many of you out there, and you're doing a great job, but I know for a fact you've seen stuff in this guy. And if you want, go to nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com, Send me an email with your story, your sighting, and I'll give it to Michelle. I'll just send it on to Michelle. So there's a good focal point for you. Yeah. And I know there are tons of you out there. Especially the travelers. Absolutely. Whether night, night or day, a lot of times it could be traveling salesmen, yeah. could be truckers. They've seen stuff. Yeah. I mean, and maybe, just imagine, you know, you a secluded spot on the Trans-Canada. Yeah. yeah. And God knows I've traveled those between Sudbury and Ottawa and Ottawa and Montreal. Mm. And I go back to visit family. Yeah. And there's nothing. And you look up in the sky, you see stars, and all of a sudden you see a little something in the corner of your eye, oh. and it's doing something weird. You know yeah. it's not a satellite, and you know it's not a, a burning star, as they say, yeah. because it's zigzagging. And all yeah. of a sudden you go, oh, my God, <laughs> what yeah. in the heck is this? So let us know if you yeah. have any stories like that. Triple W, Night Fright Show. And keep your eyes on Mattawa. Mattawa is a hot spot, so it's, that's... Right. Between here and Ottawa, it's a good That's place. That's right. To yeah. yeah, it's a very good place. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up, my friend. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and co-hosting the show with me once more. Folks, we're doing a whole special this month in July of UFO sightings in and around Canada. And uh, as I said before, if you've got your own sightings you want to share with people, I'll keep your anonymity. I won't. I'll change your name, whatever, and I'll put it up on the website, nightfrightshow.com. There's a link to Michelle's website there. I want to talk about Don Ledger again, because Don Ledger's got some great books out, and he's a pilot and stuff. So just let me give you the titles of them again. And again, just go to the website, Triple W Night Fright Show. There'll be links there. And the name of his books are, Don Ledger is in Nova Scotia, by the way, and he's a great Canadian writer. Maritime UFOs, which I actually have, and it's a terrific book. It's a catalog of UFO sightings in eastern Canada. Swiss Air Down, and that's something I'll probably get him back on to talk about because that's a Canadian tragedy, and 
I think it's something that should be discussed and the details come out. And that's a detailed look at the crash of Swissair Flight 111 off the coast of Nova Scotia. And he's also got a great book out called Dark Object. Now, Dark Object is co-authored with Chris Stiles, and it's the detailed story of what Don was telling us tonight, Canada's Roswell, the Shag Harbor incident of October 4th, 1967. So I want to encourage you to get those books because really uh, they're fantastic. They really are. I mean, it's chronicled, it's researched. Don, you know, he's one of the top researchers. He's been on all kinds of documentaries I've seen him on, uh, along with Stanton Friedman. Uh, All Canadian lineup, folks, in July. Michel Deschamps, Stanton Friedman's Canadian, but you didn't know that. He's been on Larry King and everything. If you've ever seen a documentary on UFOs, Look for a fellow with a beard. Yeah. <laughs> That's Stanton Freeman. He's been in every document. He's a grandfather. He's the father of Roswell. Yeah. He's gone into it extensively and researched it. And he's a scientist. He's a nuclear physicist. Yeah. This man has credibility. There's no question with it. As well, Michel and Don Ledger's a pilot. I mean, these guys all have credibility. Chris Grutowski's got a book out about alien abductions. He'll be here also, another Canadian. They've got a great radio show out there in Winnipeg, where this show is actually aired. It's syndicated, this show. Mm-hmm. And their show is called Mysterious with Chris Reed. He co-hosts with Chris Reed. And they're going to be here live on the telephone during this month, the special on UFOs. And I've made the Night Fright show the focal point, as I keep coming back to say, for all the links to get the author's books, to get to the author's website, etc. And the Night Fright website is www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. And Michelle's website's linked there also. I'm Brent Holland for Night Fright. I want to thank you all so much for listening and keep those emails coming. And one last thing before we go, keep an eye on the skies. We'll see you next time. You're listening to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. Okay, guys, the next story is about basements. So what is it about basements anyways? It always scares the uh, bejesus out of us. Is it the fact we're down there alone and nobody can hear us and the vulnerability of it all, or... Maybe it's being alone with those dark shadows. This one's from Lee via email. Hi Brent, really enjoy the show. Uh, This is a story about me growing up at my mom's in the 80s and 90s in Montreal. I was always scared of the basement. During the day it was fine, but as soon as it got dark out, I always felt that I was not alone down there. If I had to go down there for any reason, I always turned on all the lights and found it very, very cold. Not just drafty, but cold, cold. 
This theory happened just before my mom moved from my childhood home. I guess I would be in my mid-twenties. I was in the process of getting my stuff together for the move and went to the basement to see what I could find down there to clear out. My friend Kyla, I hope that's pronounced right, K-Y-L-A, and I had found a box filled with old black and white pictures in it, in a secluded part of the basement that we virtually just used for storage all those years and never went into. Anyways, there was the box. Someone had placed it on the top shelf all the way at the back, and I guess when they moved, they couldn't see it. You'd have to be a giant, ha ha ha, and left it behind. We opened the box and wiped the dust off with my hand. We started to look at the photos. I had no idea at all who the people were. I was standing up and Kyla was sitting down. She would pull a picture out of the box and then hand it to me. All of a sudden, I got really cold and then it felt like someone was standing directly behind me, breathing on my neck. Kyla asked me what was wrong and I told her. We switched places to see what would happen. Kyla took the same picture in her hand and stood there. She felt the breathing on her neck also. Whoever it was did not like the fact that we were looking at those pictures. The person had to be at least six feet as they were breathing down my neck. We left the basement really fast. When we told her husband Seamus about this incident, oh, this is interesting, guys, listen to this. He told me that when he was looking after my mom's cat while we were on vacation, he said that every time he entered the house and passed the basement door, he felt that he was being watched by someone or something. I'm writing this to you and the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. Well, mine just did too, guys. And that was from Lee. Thanks, Lee. Radio. 